Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. But you told me it's not sunny right now. Okay, right now it's beautiful, snowy Lubbock, Texas. So us Texans don't do so well when it snows. So I'm going to be staying in my house today. And I'm going to ensconce myself a bit because, spoiler alert, um, te- Texans don't always know how to drive in snow. Just takeaway message. Well, this is the first podcast, of, our first podcast of 2021. Yeah. Welcome to a new year and a new you, but still listening to Dermosphere. Our goal is to review some of the latest research that has come out in clinical dermatology. So we hope that that frees up some time for you so you can listen to some of the greatest research while you are driving or exercising or hiding from the snow or whatever it is that you're doing. Back from holiday breaks, of course. Michelle, how were your holidays? They were nice. They were simple and small, but nice. And, you know, I just focused on the most important things, which is kind of resting, recharging and reaching out to family. And, of course, reading dermatology articles. Oh, I forgot that. Reading dermatology. The the four R's, you know. Right. So tell us about the first one that we're going to discuss today. So for your consideration in this first episode of Dermosphere in the year 2021, we have a lovely review out of the International Journal of Dermatology entitled Clinical Efficacy of Popular Oral Hair Growth Supplement Ingredients by authors Madeleine Alderman, Lisa Bedford, and Jeff Potts. And here they attempt to sort of address the fact that hair supplements are a growing industry. There's been sort of a almost nuclear proliferation of new and exciting hair loss supplements on the market, getting marketed through different venues than have been marketed through before. There's a lot of direct-to-consumer marketing going through entities like Facebook and TikTok and Instagram. So patients often turn to these supplements to address their hair concerns, and it's easy for patients to buy these. It's easy for patients to waste a lot of money on these. Some of them, it might even be easy for them to get in trouble with. There's a lot of products with lots of reviews, both positive and negative. There's a problem some, in some cases with potentially like sponsored reviews that are misleading. And there's also no regulation, really, of these. Um, they're kind of regulated by the FDA as, food, FDA as foods instead of drugs. So they don't have to prove efficacy or really even safety before they're given to co- consumers. So some oral supplements do have strong evidence for their use in improving hair growth but most have not been tested in clinical trials or have only been tested in vitro or in animals. So they wanted to present a kind of holistic review of different popular oral hair growth supplements in formulations. Um, They want to point out that this doesn't address the topical formulations of these ingredients or their effect on hair growth. This is specifically focusing on oral supplementation. I'm always happy when we find articles like this because my patients, I guess not often, but sometimes will ask me about you know, over-the-counter things, and my family and various other circles of my acquaintances will ask about this stuff, and, you know, we don't really learn about it in residency. So we've had a few articles that we've discussed on this podcast, including, like, over-the-counter cosmetic stuff in general. A couple episodes ago, we talked about Bakushiol. There's been one or two other things. So I am excited to learn more about what I should take to preserve my lustrous head of hair. You do, lo- you do have lovely hair, Luke, and that's probably because you eat a normal and balanced diet, which takeaway message is a lot of these nutrients 
should be provided through a balanced diet that we should be taking anyway. But there are some supplements that can be potentially beneficial. So they kick things off with looking at vitamin A. There's a little pimpable content here, so I'm going to go over a bit of this. This, of course, is a group of fat-soluble retinoid derivatives that are essential for cell differentiation, vision, and immune function. Wait a sec. If this is pimpable, shouldn't you ring the bell? The first pimpable content bell of the new year. Very exciting. I'm holding back tears. I know. It's just sunrise, sunset. So patients who have vitamin A deficiency may have difficulty with hair growth. But as we all know, those of us who use retinoids to treat dermatoses or acne, um, excessive vitamin A can also cause alopecia. A lot of the nutritional um, elements that are important for hair growth and cause hair loss and deficiency states also can cause hair loss in toxicity states. So you have to kind of Goldilocks these supplements and get things just right. Vitamin A is hopefully derived from a healthy diet. Um, it can be obtained either through animal products or you can get uh, pro-vitamin A or beta carotene through consumption of plants and nuts. Dermatologic manifestations of vitamin A deficiency. Are you ready for this? This is pimpable. Ichthyosis, fragile hair, intelligent effluvium. They Why often... should dermatologists already be familiar with that? I know, right? I mean, I feel like that's something that we should know to begin with. Well, uh, I think are... about it as isotretinoin side effects. Since isotretinoin yeah. is a vitamin A derivative, these are things that people get when they're on that medicine. And the funny thing is that deficiency can cause those problems and toxicity can cause those same problems. So there's definitely a therapeutic window. Oversupplementation with preformed vitamin A being beta carotene can also result in intelligent effluvium, as well as other systemic manifestations and hepatotoxicity. On a, on a side note, um, a couple of my colleagues in medical school and I, when we were in our very first year of medical school, had the bright idea to try to treat our own acne by taking a ton of vitamin A supplementation in the form of beta carotene. It helped the, the acne a little bit, but the real major side effect was that it turned just quite orange. So I was a pretty interesting color of orange for the first half of medical school. And it eventually kind of dissipated once I stopped over-supplementing beta-carotene. So something that you can actually change colors with if you want to. I it hope is... you have pictures of yourself. <laughs> Somewhere I got to find them. That you will post them on our social media accounts. I will try really hard to find those. Uh, vitamin A and beta-carotene are both antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, and they can extinguish free radicals, which is awesome. There have been some studies by Nazar Reglu and others evaluating the status of beta-carotene in patients with alopecia areata compared to healthy controls, and they found that beta-carotene's concentration was lower in patients with alopecia than in controls. Inflammatory reactions also potentially can reduce uh, blood retinol and beta-carotene content, so it's possible that this is an egg-chicken, not chicken-egg situation, where really the deficiency of vitamin A is the sequela of alopecia areata rather than being a trigger of the disease. Um, so they were kind of interested in that connection as well as potentially iatrogenic hair loss caused by oral isotretinoin and acetretin. There have been studies that show that patients taking between 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per day of isotretinoin in a four to seven month prospective study had a decrease in um, hair count as well as hair density and proportion of antigen hairs, although they point out rightly that this was a transient problem that was reversible after discontinuation of treatment. Their capsule summary on vitamin A is that clinical studies don't really support the efficacy of vitamin A supplementation for hair growth, but the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties of beta-carotene may be useful in treating alopecia areata. No studies have demonstrated improvement in alopecia areata or other hair loss conditions with vitamin A supplementation alone. So moving on to vitamin C. Vitamin C, of course, we know is ascorbic acid, and humans can't synthesize it, so we have to get it through our diet. 
It is an essential cofactor in collagen biosynthesis, and it also improves intestinal absorption of iron and iron metabolism. And we know iron can also be important for hair. This makes vitamin C supplementation an important adjunct in hair loss associated with iron deficiency anemia or iron deficiency states. As we know, vitamin C deficiency can present with corkscrew hairs, which they have a lovely photograph of, uh, also you know, known as the condition of scurvy, but the condition doesn't typically result in hair loss. They point out that L-abscorbic acid 2-phosphate, ASC2P, is a long-acting abscorbic acid derivative, which has been shown to induce hair growth in experimental animals and in vitro in human hair follicles, but there are no clinical trials to date. So their capsule summary for C is animal studies and in vitro human hair follicle studies support vitamin C or its derivatives. Uh, play a role in hair health and growth. However, there's insufficient evidence that oral supplementation in humans is beneficial for hair growth. Now on to vitamin D. We're basically walking the alphabet here. It's kind of fun. Vitamin D, also fat soluble, it's an essential role in bone health immunity, which we have discovered in spades this year with COVID. Well, sorry, last year and the beginning of this year. Hopefully not much of the rest of this year. It's also important for calcium homeostasis. And most people in the developed world get enough vitamin D through fortified food supplementation and sunlight, unless you're a dermatologist, in which case you need to supplement probably extra. Uh, vitamin D receptor is actually present in hair follicle cells. So I always like to note that when I'm talking about nutraceuticals. And studies have actually shown that it's involved in hair follicle cycling. But this is basically independent of vitamin D levels itself. They point out that low levels of vitamin D have been associated with hair loss conditions, um, including a study where they found uh, serum levels of vitamin D to be decreased in patients with alopecia areata and vitiligo in, compared, in comparison with healthy controls. Similarly, another study comparing vitamin D in, fem in females with telogen effluvium or female pattern hair loss to age-met healthy controls demonstrate that serum vitamin D was lower in telogen effluvium and female pattern hair loss patients, but there have not been any clinical trials to demonstrate that isolated supplementation with vitamin D promotes growth. So their capsule summary here is that patients with hair loss conditions such as AA or telogen effluvium should be evaluated for low serum vitamin D and given supplementation if that vitamin is low. Given alone, there's no evidence that vitamin D produces hair growth. On to so vitamin E. Important. Um, you know, I like to know the things that I need to do because my default is probably like, you guys don't need these extra vitamins you're taking. So if there's actually low vitamin D, then supplementation is something I should do. So I should check for it and supplement it, but it's unlikely to be the main driver. Is that fair? I think that that's fair. And honestly, vitamin D levels, it's hard to get toxic on vitamin D. It is theoretically possible with significant supplementation. But most people, if you check them, are either low normal or, or low um, deficiency state. And because of this year, we found out that vitamin D is so important in helping protect people against severe viral infections, including COVID-19. And I think that making sure people are supplementing vitamin D unless they are pathologically over-supplemented over is reasonable to do, and it's a relatively low-level intervention. Vitamin E, fat-soluble volume uh, vitamin, it's an important antioxidant, and deficiency, fortunately, in healthy individuals is rare. Malabsorption conditions like cystic fibrosis and Crohn's disease can lead to deficiency, and if you over-supplement it, you can have decreased homeostasis, so that's one of its potential toxicities. There are two forms of vitamin E available over-the-counter, tocopherols and tocotrienols, Tocotrienols are kind of a hot topic right now. Um, Bioy et al. evaluated the effects of 100 milligrams of oral tocotrienol over an eight-month randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study on hair growth in patients with varying levels of hair loss, and they found that hair count, hair weight measurements obtained at 
um, baseline four and eight months showed a significant increase in hair count to compare to placebo, but no increase in hair weight. So their capsule study here is that um, oral vitamin E has a potential positive effect on hair count. Additional larger clinical trials are needed to investigate the risks and benefits of vitamin E on hair growth and oral supplement formulations. On gotcha. to biotin. So, you knew. Go ahead. We're, we're 10 minutes into this discussion so far, and I can ignore A and C, maybe check D, and E may be helpful. Yes. So biotin. Um, you knew we were going to talk about biotin. You know that biotin can be um, deficient in states of malabsorption, alcoholism, pregnancy, antibiotic intake, or increased raw egg consumption due to avidin prohibiting the absorption of biotin. I think that's pimpable. So long story short, no one has found that biotin by itself is that terribly helpful in um, patients who are healthy. There's no upper limit for biotin intake, but exogenous supplementation can interfere with lab tests, specifically the troponin test. It can give a false low troponin, so that can lead to a misdiagnosis of myocardial infarction. They can also have false positive results for TSH antibody studies, suggesting Graves' disease in patients who don't have that. And this is the scary one I didn't know, may interfere with some urinary HCG devices. Eek! That one's kind of mm. scary. Um, so if you had somebody hyper-supplementing biotin and you were trying to make sure they weren't pregnant for, you know, the administration of another drug that could be problematic, like maybe isotretinoin, who knows? That'd be kind of scary. Um, so biotin, most one of the most advertised ingredients, um, has never really been studied independently. So there's no published evidence that oral biotin supplementation can promote hair growth in the setting of deficiency. You mean in the setting of... Non-deficiency. Non like yeah. In the setting of non-deficiency. I know, right? Because I should where... be saying vitamin E instead of biotin. I know. I mean, it's so far, that's what I'm taking away. Niacin, also known as vitamin B3, water-soluble. It is important in anabolic and catabolic metabolism and gene expression. It's available in a wide variety of animal and plant-based foods and in the forms of nicotinic acid and nicotinamide. Niacin's one of my favorite vitamins, actually. It's very helpful for inflammation. It's helpful for, um, I think, skin health. Um, the topical application of niacin has actually shown increase in hair fullness in women with female pattern alopecia. And this was thought to be the result of niacin-induced increased blood flow, which would optimize oxygen and nutrient delivery to the scalp. Oral supplementation, however, has not been proven to be helpful for hair growth. It has, in some other studies, been helpful for prevention of actinic-related skin cancer, um, as well as heart health and brain health. Minerals, zinc. Yeah, I'm, in dermatology, of course, I use it primarily as like a prevention of AKs kind of thing. Yeah, there's, I think, some good evidence for that. It's also theoretically beneficial for certain types of deteriorative neurologic diseases. So probably something you could put in the water if you were the evil mayor of your city or something to help people feel better. Maybe the good evil mayor. Um, so patients with hair loss as the result of deficiency of niacin could potentially benefit patients who have something like pellagra. However, there's insufficient use to support the use of niacin um, as a supplement for hair growth in the absence of deficiency. On to zinc. Zinc is an essential trace element. It is involved in protein function, cell function, and gene expression. It's also crucial to immune cell function, and you have to have enough zinc obtained through the diet, basically. Uh, a symptom of severe zinc de deficiency is alopecia. Patients will regrow hair after you supplement them. The exact role of 
zinc in hair growth is not known. So they've had a couple of studies where they looked at zinc levels in male patients with androgenetic alopecia compared with healthy controls and found serum zinc to be significantly lower in patients with androgenetic alopecia compared to healthy controls. Another study similarly compared patients with alopecia areata to healthy controls, as well as patients with female androgenetic alopecia to healthy controls, and found significantly lower zinc levels in both patients with alopecia areata and female patterned hair loss. There have been some studies that have looked at the effect of oral zinc supplementation, some in the area of alopecia areata with a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. They showed no improvement in the active group compared to placebo by, by subjective assessment, but the trial was only three months long. So the authors suggest that possibly the short time frame might have interfered with finding a positive signal there. Another trial looked at the efficacy of oral zinc supplementation on hair growth. They had patients in three or four arms. They had zinc supplementation, oral zinc sulfate, calcium pantothenate, and a combination of zinc and calcium or 2% minoxidil over four months for women with hair loss. And all groups demonstrated positive outcomes with significant change in hair thickness in the zinc group. Patient assessment showed 88.8% receiving minoxidil saw improvement, 85% in the combination group saw improvement, 55% with zinc alone also reported improvements. So they were interested in that. So capsule summary here is that the evaluation for zinc deficiency in patients with hair loss, these patients may benefit from oral supplementation. It, however, oral zinc supplementation was shown to have no benefit on hair growth in patients with alopecia areata in one study, but it was limited to only three months. So there's mild support for increased hair thickness with zinc supplementation in women with hair loss, potentially helpful. One of the other things people have been supplementing in the age of COVID, so hopefully that will be helpful with all the stress-related telogen effluvium people might be experiencing. So, so far, zinc and vitamin E are the ones that have actual data for sort of your random person with thinning hair. And potentially topical niacin, but we're focusing on oral supplementation here. On to iron. Iron, of course, very important for red blood cell production. It's also important for DNA synthesis. Iron deficiency is actually the most common nutritional deficiency in the world. And low serum ferritin, which is an iron binding protein, is the most sensitive and specific marker of iron deficiency. It is, though, also an acute phase reactant, and so it can be elevated in inflammatory diseases, cancer, or potentially infections. So you have to interpret it with a little bit of salt. Um, vegans and vegetarians may be at risk for iron deficiency because non-heme iron from plant-based foods is harder to absorb. Vitamin C co-administration does help to absorb that non-heme iron. Menstruation and pregnancy are the most common causes of iron deficiency in premenopausal women. In men and postmenopausal women, malabsorption or GI blood loss are the most common causes. Other than acute overdose or patients who have genetic conditions like hemochromatosis, it's hard to make an adult toxic with um, iron. So iron overload is difficult to achieve unless you're kind of doing it intentionally. There are inconsistent data on iron levels in hair loss conditions. There have been studies comparing ferritin in females with telogen effluvium or female patterned hair loss to age-matched healthy controls. Those studies found serum ferritin to be significantly lower in telogen effluvium and female pattern hair loss patients using a cutoff value of 27.5 and 29.4 micrograms per liter. I will say that when I'm treating patients who have female pattern hair loss, I'm aiming for a ferritin of about 75, and I have had success in patients repleted over that level. If I can't get the ferritin above that level, I have a, hard, a harder road to hoe with those patients. If you have a patient who comes in and you, they seem kind of like your standard menopausal woman with probably female pattern hair loss, do you check labs? And if so, which ones? 
If I have a patient's presenting for um, telogen effluvium or severe hair loss, and there's not an obvious cause to it, or the trichoscopic pattern is somewhat inconsistent, meaning that there's evidence of androgenetic alopecia, but also some potential markers of either telogen effluvium or other inflammatory conditions, I might consider checking labs. And when I do a D-check ferritin, I've actually found about five patients that had undiagnosed hemochromatosis that way. And I've found at this point in my career, at least 100 female patients with hair loss that have had profoundly low ferritin. The lowest one I think I can remember was two. I find fours and tens all the time. So people have very low ferritin levels. And you just you can't get their hair loss to respond to anything until you get their iron levels replete because the body is not going to waste nutrients making hair if the iron stores are that low. So I do find it useful to check. Do you check? Usually not. Um, you said you check it in people with severe hair loss. I don't think I've had a lot of people with that degree of hair loss. I'm sort of the hair person in my group, so... I get kind of all the challenging hair loss patients. So by the time they get to me, sometimes it's already, they've already been through several normal conventional treatments, topical trial of minoxidil, um, you know, looking out for other inflammatory conditions, things like that. Gotcha. So ingestion of L-lysine has also been reported to improve iron absorption. L-lysine is an essential amino acid that you find in meat, fish, and eggs. Uh, You can actually see that there's a modest increase in serum ferritin when you're supplementing iron twice daily by adding the L-lysine, and that might be even more important in vegan or vegetarian patients. So iron supplementation may be beneficial in patients at risk for deficiency. You want to do this in a case-by-case basis with an objective measure of ferritin levels. So they said there's weak evidence to support the use of oral iron supplement in all hair loss patients, but in those deficients, it could be quite helpful. Selenium is a trace element. It is essential for proper proper function of antioxidant and anti-inflammatory proteins. Selenium deficiency and toxicity, again, these double-edged swords here, are both associated with hair loss. Deficiency is rare in the developed world unless you have an at-risk population, such as patients with HIV, those on dialysis, or those on TPN. Chronic toxicity has been reported from excessive Brazil nut consumption, which I find fascinating. Um, Acute toxicity has potentially occurred from improperly formulated over-the-counter supplements, but there have been no trials for selenium supplementation in isolation, so they have no evidence to support selenium supplementation on hair growth. They go on now to plant derivatives and nutraceuticals. The most interesting of these to me was pumpkin seed oil. Um, Pumpkin seed oil is another hot topic right now. It's gaining popularity in alternative and complementary medicine. It has multiple beneficial effects reported, such as anti-diabetic, antibacterial, antioxidant, and anti-inflammatory. It is also a source of zinc, iron, potassium, selenium, magnesium, and calcium. So that's a nice little kind of supplementation of those minerals and um, electrolytes. It is thought to be able also to block 5-alpha reductase, which of course converts testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. And that of course causes problems with hair loss. They did a 24-week randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study where they gave patients with androgenetic alopecia 400 milligrams per day of this pumpkin seed oil, and they monitored hair count and hair diameter. And they actually found a statistically significant increase in their hair in the hair count in the active group. And supplementation also had in some additional ingredients, so it wasn't the pumpkin seed oil by itself. But they are interested in the the ability of this to help improve hair growth. So there's mild evidence to support pumpkin seed oil as a complementary alternative medicine treatment for androgenetic alopecia. They said there's insufficient clinical evidence to support its use in all hair loss conditions. See, 
So I know they go through a bunch of other stuff, but we're kind of running out of time for this particular article. Do you feel like you can yeah. summarize the remainder? Yep, I can quickly summarize. So saw palmetto as an inhibitor of 5-alpha reductase has shown some improvement in patients, especially in male patients with patterned hair loss. And they found uh, compared to finasteride, which gave 68% of the patients in that treatment arm increased hair growth, 38% of their patients with saw palmetto had an increase in hair growth. So mild evidence to support saw palmetto. Ashwagandha, it's an adaptogen. It's an Ayurvedic um, herb that has been used to normalize the stress response. They've actually found that it can normalize serum cortisol levels in patients after eight weeks of supplementation. So you actually have a hard data point in there, not just a survey. They have also found that it moderates um, testosterone deficiency in young males, but does not cause hypertestosteronism in women. And in both males and females, it decreases DHEAS, which is an inactive steroid precursor that can be converted to androgens and estrogens and may be elevated in stress conditions. So the ashwagandha um, may potentially promote hair growth also through induction of endothelial nitric oxide synthesis synthetase and improve blood flow and oxygen delivery to the scalp. There have not been any clinical trials, however, to show a direct effect of ashwagandha on hair growth. So they found that there's some evidence to support the use of ashwagandha as a complementary or alternative medicine treatment due to its anti-stress properties, but there is insufficient evidence to support its use in all hair loss conditions. Curcumin, of course, this is uh, from turmeric. It is a, another constituent of Ayurvedic medicine and has anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. Uh, some people are kind of studying this along with uh, its use in prostate cancer as an anti-androgenic anti component, and they found that it might also help with androgenic alopecia. So oral ingestion by itself is difficult unless you add piperidine. So this is a black pepper that helps to increase the bioavailability of curcumin. It also potentially can improve the metabolism in patients supplemented, but there's insufficient evidence for its use in hair loss conditions. Capsaicin, it's what makes peppers hot. It's thought to improve antioxidants as well as improving metabolism and reducing insulin resistance. They've tried the topical capsaicin in alopecia areata patients, which was able to show improvement in those patients, although I wonder what the topical side effects of that were. They've also tried looking at oral uh, capsaicin and isoflavone, and they looked at that uh, effect on serum insulin-like growth factor 1 and global hair growth in patients with alopecia. IGF-1 inhibits apoptosis and helps maintain hair follicles and antigens. Serum IGF-1 was increased in patients who were supplemented with oral capsaicin and isoflavone compared to the placebo group, as well as having um, increased promotion in hair growth. But there was no published data on the effects of oral capsaicin alone on hair growth. So there's insufficient evidence for that use. Horsetail. This is an herbaceous plant. It can be used to inhibit 5-alpha reductase in vitro, and it's been indicated for the prevention of hair loss. It also has a high concentration of silicon, which is a mineral important for collagen synthesis. It is a soil mineral that's been depleted by modern farming techniques. We have found that supplementing this particular mineral helps to improve collagen 1-type synthesis by skin fibroblasts, and so potentially could be beneficial for hair growth. They had a couple of studies where they looked at this in patients who had hair loss. They found that hair elasticity um, improved in patients who were supplemented with this particular mineral. There is some evidence suggesting that horsetail can be helpful to promote hair and skin health, but they say more trials are necessary. MSM. Um, which is methyl sulfonylmethane. That is a natural sulfur-containing compound in plants and milk. 
It's become popular as an anti-inflammatory supplement. It's been reported to improve skin firmness, tone, and texture, and is thought to promote hair and skin nail health through donating sulfur to keratin. As we know, if you've ever used pottery, there's a lot of sulfur in keratin. That's why it smells funny when you burn it. Um, So they actually found in this particular one that they had improvement of hair shine, which is something I'd not seen reviewed before, volume and uh, decrease in hair split ends, and found a significant increase in hair volume and shine in in the treatment groups. So they really liked that potentially. They said some evidence to support the use of methyl sulfonylmethane, MSM, as a complementary, but more trials, of course, are needed. Natraceuticals, these are food or supplements in the biologically active properties. So there's three that they go over. There's the amino mar marine complex. That's in Viviscal. That's a proprietary blend of shark and mollusk powder. Importantly, the shark cartilage they're using is from cultured shark chondroblasts. They're not murdering sharks to make this. Um, They did find that there was some benefit of the aminomar complex, which is present in a supplement, including also vitamin C, B vitamins, zinc, calcium, iron, and horsetail extract. This is Viviscal. This is Viviscal. I like this one. I do like this one. And it's the least expensive of the three they're they're going over here in the Natraceuticals. So Viviscal is about $31 a month. It's one tablet POBID. It is a round tablet that's ridiculously shaped and it tastes awful, but it doesn't upset your stomach unless you really have a very weak stomach. Um, So they had some studies that showed improvement in hair shedding uh, in a double-blind placebo-controlled study, which is the kind of study we like to see and that it also improved total hair count and density, as well as improving antigen rate, which I thought was an impressive kind of measurement. Um, They also found, and I think this is a big um, topic that should be gaining interest, there's perifollicular inflammation that occurs in all types of alopecia, including androgenic alopecia, and in scalp biopsies of patients treated with this particular supplement, Viviscal, they actually found a decrease in that perifollicular inflammation. So that's Product one. Product two is the Synergen Complex. This is present in Nutrafol. Nutrafol is about $88 a month, and you have to take four large gel caps. Um, The Nutrafol is a good product. It has the Synergen Complex. It also has a bunch of herbs and spices in it, including ashwagandha root, which we spoke about earlier, tocotrienol, which we spoke about earlier, and curcumin. So it's, it's hitting a lot of the buttons here as well. This one I find gives you a little bit more dyspepsia unless you're taking it directly with a meal. And the four capsules are sometimes a lot to swallow at once, but they did find in their double-blind placebo-controlled study that total hair counts, terminal and vellus hairs improved um, along with primary and secondary measures in these patients. And then finally, they go over the Neurocrin uh, supplement, which goes by the, by the name Neurocrin. This is about $40 a month. You take two tabs once a day. This is another marine protein supplement that also has vitamins and minerals. They had a six-month randomized placebo-controlled double-blind study of patients with hair loss of different etiologies, and they compared hair counts at baseline and six months later. The active group had average hair growth increase of 35.7%. Placebo had an average growth of 1.5%. So they had significant improvement over the control group. Uh, Based on their current literature, they said there's strong evidence to support the use of Aminomar, which is in Viviscal. Um, as a complementary treatment to hair growth. There is evidence from a small study supporting the use of Synergen Complex as a complementary treatment. And there is evidence from a small study supporting the use of Neurokin as a comp- complementary supplement. So overall evidence of marine complex func- uh, formulations for hair loss um, exists. And the exact mechanism is still not completely well understood. 
they're all unique and they're all administered with different vitamins and minerals, which have all not been shown in isolation to improve hair growth. So they recommend other studies for that. So in the kind of summary to this, they basically say there's a lot of interest in this. These things proliferate on an almost daily basis. There's, they're flooding the market right now. Of the vitamins and minerals that we reviewed, uh, vitamin A, vitamin D, biotin, niacin, and selenium don't have any clinical evidence supporting their use as an oral supplement in isolation. Vitamin C and iron have weak evidence supporting their use in iron deficient patients. Vitamin E and zinc have mild evidence supporting their use in all hair loss conditions with larger clinical trials needed. Ashwagandha, curcumin, and capsaicin have no clinical evidence supporting their supplement in hair loss conditions. There are small studies to support the use of pumpkin seed oil and saw palmetto. And horsetail and MSM, uh, methyl sulfonylmethane, have mild evidence supporting their use. The marine complexes, specifically aminomar, have demonstrated positive impact on hair. Synergen complex and neurocrine have mild evidence to support their use. Again, these are often present as a member of a large cocktail of supplements. So there's a lot out there. There's some evidence for what we can use that actually will help the patient. There was no conflict of interest reported in this study. I do always like to check that when we're talking about commercial products. So literally food for hairy thought. I feel like I need a large cocktail. There was a lot of information. It's a large article. So how is, are you going to change your practice based on this, do you think? Well, I already recommend Viviscal to most of my patients that have telogen effluvium or female pattern hair loss. Sometimes I'll also recommend Nutrafol if I feel like there's a large stress component to their hair loss. I do want to you know, consider looking at some of the other uh, minerals. I tend to check vitamin D deficiency states and iron deficiency states in any of the patients who are having struggles. I'd been previously interested in tocotrienols for other conditions because they're also broad anti-inflammatories, and I've been recommending them for some of my severe psoriasis patients. So I think that that might help to pique my interest in that as a potential therapeutic for patients who have hair loss. And I've got something in my armamentarium for my crunchy granola patients, which is the pumpkin seed oil, as it had some mild evidence along with supplying some nice uh, sources of zinc, iron, potassium, selenium, magnesium, and calcium. Well... I think the main thing I've got out of it is that uh, I'm not going to recommend biotin anymore. That? <laughs> Heresy. I know, right? All right. Let's talk about something completely different. Wounds. Everybody likes talking about wounds. <laughs> so this article is out of the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology and is called Use of Topical Timolol Maliate as Re-Epithelialization Agent for Treatment of Recalcitrant Wounds of Varying Etiologies. Two, pri- or two first authors are Brian Kahn and Ramanjat Kaur, and the senior author is Hadar Levtov. This is out of a few places, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, the VA in Northern California, the University of Miami, and UC Davis. So I'm just looking for more reasons to love Timolol. It's becoming one of my favorites. I use it you know, most commonly for like infantile hemangiomas, but... We reviewed a couple articles back in episode 33 that it could be useful for fissures of the hands and feet. And we also reviewed, I think, in episode 40 that maybe it could be helpful for post-acne erythema. Can it help chronic wounds? This article suggests that it can. So this was a retrospective analysis from wound specialty clinics at the University of Miami and at the VA in Northern California. 55 chronic wounds and 39 patients. Most of these wounds were venous stasis, 30 of the 55 were, 
And they were there for a long time before the Timolol began. The median time was 118 days. So I guess that's like four months or so before the Timolol. This was a retrospective review. So they just sort of looked back and saw who had received Timolol. So there were various dosing regimens. It was like one drop of Timolol per, per centimeter squared of wound area. So that seemed to be at least consistent. One drop per centimeter squared of wound area. And that was applied sometimes BID, sometimes daily, sometimes every other day. Also, some people got this fancy device. So there's a, a device that'll just deliver it, I guess, in a little bit constantly from a company called Acton, A-C-T-O-N. Um, I looked this up and it, it looks pretty slick. There's like a, a little patch that you put on the wound and it's hooked up to like a, a little device that you wear on a band around your leg or something. And it looks a little bit like a mini wound vac and just kind of constantly delivers this Timolol. You ever heard of that stuff? Uh, Timolol or a wound vac? The, no, this Acton Timolol delivery system. I have not heard of that before. Yeah, me either. Kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Anyway, after treatment, the authors divided the patients into three groups. The people that were totally healed, there were 34 of them, or 34 wounds, I guess. Those that were improved, 15. And then the other sad group, which was the wounds that were stable or worse, despite the use of Timolol. So 49 of 55 wounds, 89% of them got better. But remember, this is a retrospective review. It's not like a placebo-controlled trial. So one hopes that our body naturally heals wounds anyway. So it's tough to say, you know, how much of that change is due to Timolol. It's tough to say, um, but the authors make some good points that Timolol can at least be helpful. So in the group that was completely healed, the median treatment duration was 90 days, so three months. And remember, the wounds had been there for four months prior. So they do make the argument that these wounds were so chronic that we wouldn't have just expected them to get better on their own after 90 days. So Timolol probably did something. The majority of people in the healed group had Timolol that was dosed once a day. And 31 of the 34 wounds that healed completely were on the leg, one of the toughest spots to heal. And they note that in both the healed and the improved groups, the healing rate was fastest among the wounds that received the continuous Timolol application with that device or the people who got Timolol every day. Those people got better than people who were dosed twice a day with this medicine or that were dosed every other day. They also point out that the highest percent reduction in wound size was those getting the continuous application from the device followed by the people getting it dosed daily. So every other day or twice a day use just seems to be not as good as daily use. Kind of weird. The authors suggest that that might be due to compression. So if you, you know, put the Timolol on once a day and then put on your compression garments and wear that in 24 hours, maybe that's better than having to like unwrap your wound, put Timolol on a second time a day and then wrapping it again. So the compression seems to be important, perhaps. They point out that Timolol was helpful for wounds of different etiologies, so most of them were venous stasis, but it also helped people with radiation dermatitis wounds, pyoderma gangrenosum, and malignancy-related wounds. And also remember, these were at wound specialty clinics, so these were wound specialists taking care of these folks, doing standard of care treatment and some advanced therapies such as skin substitutes that weren't getting better, but they got better after they started Timolol. No adverse events in this group, though I think... You'll talk a little bit more about that in your next article. And they say, based on these and other data, time to Timolol response seems to be about three months. 
So they say that this highlights that Timolol is an adjunct treatment to wound care. It's not the only thing you can do, but it does seem to be helpful. Do you take care of a lot of chronic wound patients, Michelle? Oh, I see that you dropped off for a sec. Hopefully you'll show up soon. I'll just talk a little bit about chronic wounds, because as I said, everyone talks about chronic wounds and likes it. So I don't think I need to convince most dermatologists that chronic wounds are a big deal. The prevalence is about 4.5%, costs the U.S. about $25 billion a year. They've got some significant morbidity and mortality, so like the five-year mortality rate for someone with a chronic wound is comparable to certain malignancies. And then steps in the wound healing process include re-epithelialization, which occurs when keratinocytes migrate across the wound surface, proliferate, and differentiate. Ding, ding! Michelle's off, so I'll have to make my own pimping bell. Re-epithelialization. And they say that recalcitrant, recalcitrant wounds that fail to epithelialize are more, most often due to delays in migration, which is where Timolol seems to help. So for keratinocytes to be able to migrate, they have to break their cell-cell contacts, polarize, and then reorganize their skeletal structure. And keratinocytes, melanocytes, and fibroblasts all have beta-adrenergic receptors at which timolol can act. So timolol seems to help these keratinocytes migrate across their, the wound surface. So again, love timolol. Maybe you can overuse it. I think Michelle is going to talk about that in her next article, but certainly seems like a good idea for your chronic wounds. I would probably start by dosing it once a day. All right. Well, as we all know, sometimes even our favorite drugs have a dark side. And so sadly, I present to you adverse effects of topical timolol, safety concerns and implications for dermatologic use. This is an article out of the JAD 2021 in our very first article of the year from the JAD 2021. Um, the authors are Daniel J. Boyun and Romanjot Kaur, they are co-first authors, and Rivka Isarov, who is the corresponding author, and many of them are from University of California, Davis. Wait a second. Romanjot Kaur was also one of the first authors on the last article. That's exciting. He's a Timolol expert. So he, he loves Timolol, and he acknowledges that it, too, has its weaknesses. So, sadly, um, Timolol... A lot of us, I think, tend to think of topical medications as relatively innocuous. But, you know, beginning with the whole sunscreen absorbed into the body thing, where we have to think about, are we sure that they're innocuous? Um, corticosteroids potentially absorbed into the body through skin. We know we even dose certain sex hormone replacement therapies through the skin. And so timolol also potentially can be absorbed. It's a non-selective beta-androgenetic receptor antagonist, and it's approved by the U.S. FDA for the treatment of wide-angle glaucoma. They point out that early studies reported adverse events of transient changes in heart rate and blood pressure, and subsequent reports of more than 3,000 adverse events included 450 serious adverse events and 32 deaths. I looked up this original publication. It's actually from the American Journal of Ophthalmology in 1986, and it was adverse respiratory um, and cardiovascular events attributed to Timolol ophthalmic solution from 1978 to 1985. So, of note, the patients in this study, median age was 68 years. Um, they were significantly more commonly affect, afflicted with respiratory disease and cardiovascular disease, as those diseases do increase in prevalence with increasing age, and others had other illnesses as well. 
so this wasn't exactly, you know, newborn babies without other medical problems that are being treated with timolol in the study. But we, of course, want to be cautious whenever we're using a medication in a vulnerable patient population. The authors point out that off-label use of timolol for dermatologic conditions is increasing. It's hot right now, so hot. Uh, so it's been used, of course, for the treatment of infantile hemangiomas, pyogenic granulomas, epidermolysis bullosa, perinichia, angiofibroma, Kaposi's sarcoma, and pyoderma gangrenosum also being used to improve scar outcomes, and it's being used topically as a therapeutic for non-healing ulcers, as you discussed in the previous article. They point out that one of the reasons why this is probably beneficial is because it shows enhancement of keratinocyte migration, downregulation of inflammation, and upregulation of pro-reparative factors in the wound bed. It also potentially reverses the anti-reparative effect of catecholamines in the wound bed. Catecholamines, of course, might cause vasoconstriction, which would be counterproductive in wound healing. So they want to dis discuss the potential adverse events in um, in the use of this medication. They also rightly point out that adverse events were not noted in cases reporting success with topical timolol in children with infantile hemangiomas, but monitoring was incomplete. There was one study with continuous Holter monitoring that noted bradycardia in four out of 22 infants, and systemic absorption in infants was shown to be up to serum levels of 0.3 to 1.6 nanogram per milliliter, which were similar to concentrations seen with adult ophthalmologic use. In 2018, there was a study of peak plasma levels of timolol after application of this solution to adults with chronic wounds, and they also showed concentrations of 0.29 to 1.78 nanograms per milliliter after one hour application, similar to that seen in matched ophthalmic timolol user group without any noted adverse events. So the safety of this drug really depends on carefully screening patients for contraindication. Screening should include assessment of all risk factors, such as presence of cardiopulmonary disease, uh, any kind of high-risk um, dysrhythmias, things like that. They said, if you do have a high-risk patient, you might want to do an ambulatory ECG or Holter monitoring because the onset of action of this drug is fast within 20 minutes after ophthalmic uh, application. They recommended baseline determination of heart rate, blood pressure, and lung auscultation to be repeated 20 minutes after initial application. And they recommend that dosing for skin ulcers should range from one to three drops of the 0.5% gel forming solution, depending on the wound area per day. So given that dosages on the skin and the eye are similar as blood levels are after dosing, a comparable adverse event profile can be assumed. They also recommend application to the epidermal margin of the wound because of the major mode of action being improving keratinocyte migration. They also were a bit concerned that topical application of timolol could, in rare cases, induce arterioventicular block, even after long-term use, it's particularly in the elderly or in at-risk patients with underlying cardiac disease, especially if they have known pre-existing first-degree AV block. Or if you do have a patient in that setting, a baseline ECG and follow-up ECG after initiation should be performed. And the only thing that kind of brought a little bit of concern to me was if you had a patient that had both an infantile hemangioma and neonatal lupus, where they could have congenital heart block, that might be a patient where you'd want to be more concerned. Of course, I would hope that patient would already have um, a multi-specialty care team taking care of them. So they did have a tabular presentation of their results. And relatively reassuringly, the adverse events reported in infantile hemangiomas were relatively mild, showing bradycardia, hypotension, bronchospasm, shortness of breath, which theoretically resolved. Hypoglycemia, of course, which we always worry about, potentially sleep disturbance or contact dermatitis. 
The um, ocular hypertension open angle glaucoma group, an older group of patients with more medical comorbidities, had an increased rate of um, predisposition towards adverse events, including some dangerous ones, such as respiratory failure, distress, or dyspnea. So I think that we do need to be cautious when we're using topical medications and make sure that we're not deluding ourselves into presuming that they're always safe because they're not going inside the mouth or by the vein. They still get absorbed into the patient's blood system and can cause problems for susceptible individuals. I want to delude myself, though, Michelle. I mean, delusions can be fun, um, but we do have to be aware of these things. And, you know, I think that the reassuring thing is that most of the little babies that we treat with Timolol don't have a lot of the pre-existing conditions that would increase their risk. But I think also it's a good idea to be able to counsel parents about the use of this medication. And as we start to expand the use of Timolol into a greater patient population for its benefits on wound healing, I think we do need to interpret the kind of baseline risk of those patients carefully. Well, I'm pretty comfortable using it in babies, um, kind of two drops a day maximum. And I always tell parents to feed the baby before putting the Timolol on since a little bit does get absorbed into their blood. And if we give propranolol, the most concerning side effect is hypoglycemia. But of course, after the last article, I'm now thinking about using it in older people with chronic wounds. And I don't really want to be checking EKGs and listening to people's lungs and stuff. I'm not comfortable with that kind of thing. I think that really, if you have a patient that you're using Timolol drops and they have a chronic wound and they have a cardiovascular issue, I think just making sure their cardiologist is aware of it and potentially considering monitoring them for the first period of application for about 20 minutes to ensure that they don't have worrisome changes in their vital signs would be reasonable in a selected patient group. I also wondered about the total... um dosage he says one to three drops depending on wound area per day though in the last article they say they use one drop per centimeter squared of the wound Mm -hmm. so i feel like that could definitely get up to greater than three drops because some of these wounds are pretty large I agree. And, you know, wounds that have an ulcer bed might absorb the medication more readily as well and so i think that does also need to be taken into consideration Well, um, as we know, in the pandemic, we've had to make some changes, so I'm recording from my bedroom closet, and if anybody heard my children hanging around outside, um, they they were eager to say hello to our listeners. We were talking about pediatric use of Timolol. They were just like, you know, showing up. Right. And I am eager to talk about our next article, which is the second in our series of dermatologic toxicities related to anti-cancer agents yeah uh so the this is an article out of the annals of oncology and the title is prevention and management of dermatological toxicities related to anti-cancer agents colon esmo clinical practice guidelines i assume that's pronounced esmo and it's the european society for medical oncology this was a large international multidisciplinary panel as we've discussed before the other listed authors include me la couture and um, K. Jordan. So in the last, uh, well, I guess not in the last one. In the last episode, we did our 2020 Dermy Awards. Uh, in the episode before that, we discussed some of the acneiform eruptions that patients can get with some of these anti-cancer agents. And now I'm going to talk about a couple different things. So first, hand-foot syndrome and hand-foot skin reaction. So those are two different things, okay? Hand-foot skin syndrome, or hand-foot syndrome and hand-foot skin reaction. Okay. So hand-foot syndrome 
is from cytotoxic, like sort of traditional chemotherapies. It has a, a number of different names, including Palmar, Palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia syndrome, acral erythema, or the one I've most heard it talked about as toxic erythema of chemotherapy, TEC or TEC. So patients get redness, discomfort, swelling, tingling of the palms and or soles. Inciting agents include those cytotoxic therapies such as... So I don't know if this is bellworthy. These are some traditional cytotoxic therapies. 5-fluorouracil, capacitabine, doxorubicin, docetaxel, and cytarabine. So usually shows up within days to weeks of starting the drug, but can take months. Patients usually first experience some dysesthesia, which then progress to things that you can see clinically. Sometimes erythema, blistering, desquamation sometimes. It can affect the dorsal surfaces as well and can affect the intertriginous areas. So even though it's hand-foot syndrome, it can affect some other areas as well. So maybe that's why toxic erythema of chemotherapy is sometimes used. Mm -hmm. So that is not to be confused with hand-foot skin reaction. So on the other hand, (laughs) this one is caused by BRAF inhibitors such as vemurafenib, dabrafenib, and encorafenib. So remember, if it has raf in the name, it's probably a BRAF inhibitor. Also, there are some MEK inhibitors that can cause it, including serafinib, oh, thereby proving that not all of them read the rulebook, cabozantinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib. So hand-foot skin reaction is more like PPK. So they get PPK changes, occasional blisters, mostly on pressure-bearing surfaces. So what to do? So first, there are ways to prevent these things. And there are things that you might guess if you thought about it. So avoid irritation to the hands and feet, such as long walks that you do with your feet, (laughs) carrying heavy things, especially if you're doing it like without properly padded shoes and stuff you want to want to avoid chemical stress as well like playing with funny chemicals with your hands or slime if any of you out there are 12 year old girls skin irritants um urea 10 cream three times a day seems to help prevent the hand foot skin reaction the ppk one especially so if you're have a patient who's going to start a BRAF inhibitor or mech inhibitor urea 10 cream three times a day to hands and feet seems like a good idea another decent way to help prevent these from happening is to treat any of their pre-existing foot problems. So if they already have some calluses and stuff, they're more at risk. So you can consider, for example, sending them to podiatry to get their feet in ship ship shape for their (laughs) upcoming chemotherapy. And also for taxane-based therapy, you can use skin cooling gloves and socks during the infusion. That's been shown to help prevent the toxic erythema of chemotherapy response. Once somebody has it, you treat it with things you might guess. Topical steroids if it looks inflammatory. Keratolytics if it's hyperkeratotic. Lidocaine cream can just help numb it down. If they've got symptoms of burning or warmth, you can use cooling packs. Like, they have those that you can just buy at the drugstore. And then if they get ulcerations from these, then the authors recommend sulfur, sulfadiazine for that. They do say that the toxic erythema of chemotherapy often requires interruption or decreased dose of the inciting agent. Makes sense. I've only had one or two patients with this, um, but it's good to know what it is and what to do about it. The other one I want to talk about today is alopecia. So it can be induced by 
traditional chemotherapies, and there's also the endocrine therapy induced. The authors kind of split those apart into two different entities. So endocrine therapy induced alopecia, question mark. (laughs) So maybe think about breast cancer treatments like aromatase inhibitors. So this seems to occur in, we're not quite sure, some large range of patients, like 4 to 20% of people, but about 8% of people on the aromatase inhibitors discontinue therapy as a result of their alopecia. So Mm. your alopecia is probably pretty bad or your psychosocial distress is pretty bad for you to stop treating your cancer because of it. Right. It occurs 6 to 18 months after starting therapy. And it would remind dermatology practitioners of androgenetic alopecia, probably. The Mm -hmm. alopecia occurs in the vertex and frontotemporal scalp and involves miniaturization of the hair follicles, Um, which makes sense because they're, you know, endocrine therapies that are affecting sort of the testosterone estrogen axis. And the therapies can also cause hirsutism, as you might also guess. Mm -hmm. So that's contrasted with chemotherapy-induced hair loss, which starts much faster. Usually one to three weeks after starting therapy affects the whole scalp, can affect eyelashes, eyebrows, and body hair. You can tell patients that they'll start regrowing their hair two to three months after they are done with their treatment. And they say the hair usually grows about one centimeter a month. Um, I'm not sure if that's normal hair growth. It sounds probably about normal. Um, 65% of people notice change in their hair color or texture at regrowth. And this kind of hair loss is probably what we would call antigen effluvium. So the antigen hairs under the influence of the chemotherapy agent transition to a dystrophic telogen or catagen phase. Um, I don't know if this is pimpable, but this transition to telogen or catagen is triggered by a P53 mediated apoptosis of the keratinocytes and stem cells that are existing in the hair matrix. So it's very fast. And because it's so fast, perhaps there are more psychosocial issues involved. So I think, you know, a lot of us sort of associate diffuse alopecia with chemotherapy medicines. And this is, this is what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Bad news, there's no good treatments for either situation, according to the authors. Though I did wonder if maybe minoxidil, which we have talked about in previous episodes, might have a role for one or both of these conditions. Mm -hmm. There are some previous studies that indicate if you use topical minoxidil during the period of development of the uh, chemotherapy-induced acute antigen effluvium, that you shorten the duration of shedding and hairlessness relatively significantly. So if the patient doesn't have a contraindication to that, it could be beneficial to them. They do mention topical minoxidil and weren't too bully about it, but I did wonder about the PO treatment, though, of course, you'd want to talk with the patient's oncology team to make sure they were comfortable with any drugs you were planning on adding. There is a way to perhaps prevent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. You might remember that back in episode 13, we talked about scalp cooling devices. Mm-hmm. So there are various ways to cool off your scalp during the infusion or before and afterward. Um, You can, I guess we can refer our listeners to episode 13 if you want to learn more about scalp cooling, but it was news to me at the time. And scalp cooling induces vasoconstriction of the, you know, the blood vessels in that area and thus reduces the biochemical activity of the drug in the scalp and hair follicles. And so it's been shown to help. So if I were to get chemotherapy and wanted to do my best to keep my hair, I would look for a place that offered scalp cooling. 
when I've talked to oncologists about this, they're usually pretty comfortable doing that for patients that have a solid tumor situation. They're not always in love with doing it for patients who have a liquid tumor because they're worried about creating a sanctuary site for any circulating atypical cells. Um, but I think it's reasonable to consider discussion with oncology. I think they actually refer to a hematologic malignancy as a contraindication for scalp cooling in this article. Makes sense. So watch out. <laughs> and then I think you were talking about the um, hormone modulating medications. Some of those can also cause something called um, like persistent chemotherapy induced alopecia. And that can be a relatively difficult condition to treat. But there have been some publications that have indicated improvement with post um, chemotherapy treatment with minoxidil, either topically or orally, as well as spironolactone. They, they do mention spironolactone kind of a case by case basis, they say. So it seems like they didn't feel comfortable recommending it for all comers. Cool. Well, stay tuned next time and we'll talk about some more dermatologic toxicities from anti-cancer agents. But that's all we've got this time. So in this episode, we talked about over-the-counter hair supplements. There are how so many of them. There are lots of them. Many of them don't do much, but some surprising data that some of them do stuff and uh, biotin, for example, not so much, apparently. We talked about topical timolol. seems to be able to help re-epithelialize wounds, but watch out, especially in people who are older with comorbidities that you don't feel like you need to be doing EKGs on people. And then we talked about some dermatologic toxicities from anti-cancer agents, including the toxic erythema of chemotherapy, hand-foot syndrome, and alopecia. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to our first episode of 2021. Thanks to our institutions for supporting the podcast, the University of Utah, and thanks to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle. Thanks also to Ryan Carlisle, who keeps our social media accounts up and running. If you would like to contact us, they are a good way to do it. So unlike some politicians I could name, we are still on Twitter. <laughs> we also have Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which is also a good way to get in touch with us and also a good way to find all of our previous episodes, including the 2020 Dermy Awards. Woo! Last episode, we gave away awards to some of our most outstanding articles, and you can find a list of the award winners on our website as well. It's under the Favorites tab. And we will see you guys in two weeks. Bye.